Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Wednesday edition of the Autzen Audibles podcast. And uh, this week, no offense, Stony Brook, we're going a little different with the schedule. Uh, this is a game where we're going to be spending a little bit more big picture type look at Oregon. Um, no offense to Stony Brook, but that's just the way things are going this week. And I think first and foremost, we need to discuss the injury news with Justin Flo, the impact that this is going to have on the Oregon program and specifically the linebacker core uh, for this Oregon defense. To catch you up to speed, if, you're, if you've been living under a rock for a while, uh, Justin Flo had 14 tackles, team high, in week one against Fresno State. Didn't make the start, but played exclusively at inside linebacker after Drew Mathis got hurt. Looked like a tremendous player. Looked at everything, everything we thought he would be. And then midweek rumors started uh, leading out that he had some kind of injury, was potentially out for the year, was potentially playing against Ohio State, somewhere in between. Uh, get, the, get to Columbus and all three of us see Justin Flo out, not warming up, wearing a boot. Crystal Ball says that he had an injury they found out on Tuesday from uh, the game against Fresno State. So he went all day Sunday, went all day Monday without knowing about it, and Tuesday it popped up. Uh, and then on Monday of this week, after Ohio State, when pressed, Cristobal said that he was out with a significant injury. It would be for a, a, a long period of time. Uh, and then Tuesday morning, Bruce Feldman reported uh, that he is hearing he is out for probably the majority of the regular season which goes right in line with what Crystal Ball said on Monday. And here we are. Uh, Oregon's second highest rated recruit in program history has played in two games for the Ducks uh, in his first two years for Oregon. And it feels like Oregon is unfortunately in Justin Flo as well. You got to feel bad for him. Like he's having years just whipped away from him from, you know, potentially being you know one of the best players in college football. And this is a big blow for this Oregon defense. Tough tough uh not a massive surprise i think from our perspective um the we had again we, we had heard from some people we trusted that this was an out for the season injury and like matt said we'd also heard from some people he's fine he's practicing everything's great yeah. and once it was clear he wasn't playing against ohio state i thought the worst because it kind of indicated that the initial rumors we'd heard were were kind of accurate he didn't play in that game if he had played in that game and he was fine it would have been all oh, those guys were full of bunk and we would have had to reevaluate some of the people we trust to, to reach out to um unfortunately that was not the case and now here we are and i am fully expecting that the next time we see justin flow it's going to be either like pac 12 championship postseason kind of stuff maybe bowl games or it's going to be spring of 2022 or maybe even fall of 2022 um this sucks this is awful because he was fantastic fantastic in that debut really really played well you saw you know you saw you saw the the potential for this front seven and i think one of the things that i sit here and reflect upon kind of now just this news just kind of dropped officially a bit ago is 
we were so excited to see a front seven that had Kayvon Thibodeau, Noah Sewell, and Justin Flo in it, and we got to see it for a quarter. Yeah. And we're not going to get to see this again, potentially, period, because I don't think Kayvon Thibodeau is playing on Oregon's football team in 2022. I don't think anyone else has any other expectations of that. And the reality is, is Justin Flo has more eligibility. He'll play in 2022. That could be his last season, though. With the talent he has, he might decide that he's going to go pro after the 2022 season, in which it looks like he basically plays one season in 2022, plus a pair of games the previous two seasons. And your heart goes out to him, too, because this is a super talented kid who two years in a row now has played one game and then suffered a season-ending or close to a season-ending injury. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's brutal. And it's also somebody who, having spoken with him before, had said he had no injury history at all. This is not a guy who like, ever missed any games, like all the way down from like Pop Warner through high school, through middle school, all that stuff. And here he is missing two consecutive full seasons to start his college career. Really heavy hit for him. You feel for him and then for the defense. And we can get into some of this who replaces him stuff. Um, this is not ideal at all. Um, Bruce Feldman does note in the tweet that both Drew Mathis and Jackson LaDuke are two players not expected to play much this season as well due to injury. LaDuke's name is not one we've mentioned a lot recently because in the lead up to fall camp, we'd noted he was out for a while and wearing a you know, brace on his, I think, is, is it a knee, Jared? It's a knee, yeah. Yeah. And on crutches. So th- we kind of knew he was out for an extended period of time. Um, Oregon is really down at that will linebacker spot. In the spring, again, I've said this before, the four guys that in the spring were at the top of the depth chart that will are no longer available. All of them are hurt. Or, or transferred, because Isaac Slade, Matt Dautia was the top guy. He transferred. Justin Flo is hurt. Drew Mathis is hurt. Jackson LaDuke is hurt. Keith Brown, who replaced him in the game, left that game with some sort of minor injury. We think that's not going to be significant. And I, my guess is that it's going to be a lot of Keith Brown and a lot of Nate Hukliani and maybe some Jeffrey Boss and Jabril McNeil the rest of the way this season. Um, it's not ideal. It's going to be the undoubted weakest point in that front seven, I would say, unless one of those guys really steps up. And maybe that's the challenge and maybe that's what happens. But I think you can't help but feel that the defense took a pretty significant hit today. Yeah, this this sucks. Just to, just to put it simply, uh, potentially the Ducks are only going to get one season of Noah Sewell and Justin Flo at the as their linebackers, which would be next year. Right. Um, again, we saw the KT like Eric, like you said, we saw the KT Flo Sewell front seven for a quarter. KT gets hurt. Um, yeah, this this is brutal. It doesn't help Oregon's defense. It's still a stout unit. I still feel like they're going to perform well and be a great defense. But like you're saying, like, you know, losing three of your top four guys at one position due to injury is terrible. Now, that's never a good thing. They, I mean, Oregon's converted safety freshman Jeffrey Bassa to linebacker now as in like an emergency preparation because of this injury. So, and again, like Eric said, Keith Brown, the guy who filled in, also went out with an injury against Ohio State. It looked like it was just cramping, and that's what Mario Cristobal said, so it shouldn't be too bad, but that's another guy he almost lost. So they're they're running on fumes in that position right there. Uh, it's really, really thin. So we'll, we'll see how they do against Stony Brook. I don't think it'll be too much of an issue, but once they get into Pac-12 play, and teams might look to exploit that a little more often than they have last week. Well, just one, one last thing. Sorry, Matt. But just I wanted to say, we talked about one quarter of Flo, Thibodeau, and Sewell. It was not just that we saw one quarter. It was also we saw how put the potential of how dang good that front could be yeah. with those guys there. Just all the playmakers running around. And I, I can't help but feel like that 
it really sucks that we just got a glimpse of this. It kind of reminds me vaguely, Matt, talking Oregon basketball, of seeing some of what Bull Bull could do that season. Yeah, yeah. And then he's out. And But guess what? That team ended up rallying and having a great season. I think this year's team in football will do the same. But sort of shades of that where it's a super talented group of guys. And one of the guys, you see, kind of start seeing the glimpses of what it can be. Um, and then he's lost for the year. It's brutal. The position now at Will has three players. They're all freshmen. Um, Keith Brown is projected as now the starter at the Will linebacker spot. And we should know, like, Keith Brown is not an uh, all-time commit that Justin Flo was. You know, Flo was a five-star. He's the second-highest-rated player to commit in program history regardless of position. But Keith Brown is the fourth highest rated linebacker to ever commit to Oregon. So it's not like, I mean, he was almost a top 100 recruit um, in the 2021 class. So it's not like there's this just massive drop off from Justin Flo to Keith Brown. Like the way I, I would best describe it is Justin Flo is like a once in a generation type talent. And Keith Brown is, a guy that shows up and is a three-year starter at a power five playoff contending team. Like he keeps Brown's just being forced into that starter role probably one year before he was truly going to be there. Um, yep. And so the talent, Keith Brown's talented. I, I don't have a lot of doubt behind, you know, in him being able to get the job done, but what really makes this position now interesting is Jabril McNeil is the backup behind Keith Brown. And McNeil showed up to Oregon as an outside linebacker and moved over during fall camp to play inside because of depth issues. Uh, he's a six foot four, two hundred and twelve pound linebacker. And then the third string, if you will, you know, will linebacker is Jeffrey Bossa, another true freshman. So they have three true freshmen, and Bossa is also a player that has changed positions. He was a safety when he showed up at Oregon during fall camp and has now been bumped down to the will spot. Uh, and if we're going to pick a wild card here, um, I think Jeffrey Boss is that guy. Like, he might be the dude who, from a physical athletic standpoint, maybe he doesn't start every game, but he might be that that guy where if you look at the end of the year and say, wow, like they were in a real big pinch and, and – this guy elevated himself and held his own as a starter, but then they needed somebody that was not expected at all to play to really play a key role, and he 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 came through. I think that might be Jeffrey Boston. I could see it. Um, I think a good point was made by Jared on our reaction show after Mario's presser on Monday, um, which was this is the, all the talk with Bossa right now is hey, you know he's. He's going to move back to defensive back once there's depth is kind of replenished at linebacker. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up being a fit here long term. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you when you saw him as a recruit, he was listed as an athlete. Um, he was an incredible again, an incredible athlete for his size, and played receiver, and played linebacker, and played safety in high school, and played all sorts of stuff. Um, he's very versatile and very talented. Um, I think McNeil is an interesting one too. Um, you know when. I don't know if it's fair to say he was an outside linebacker in terms of how he was recruited because I think Ken Wilson did say he was actually recruited to play inside. They wanted to trial run and outside to start camp. It wasn't a good fit. They brought him back. So I think that is more his natural position um, based on what I've heard. 
he would be the other one, I think, just to keep an eye on because there was a lot of positive stuff being said about him towards the end of camp. And he hasn't played a lot yet, but he has played. Um, I could see him being somebody in these next couple of games. I mean, let's talk about this way. These guys are also young and no experience. These next two games, I think, at, at will could be a situation where you go, let's get a lot of Keith Brown. Let's get a lot of Jabril McNeil. Let's get a lot of Jeffrey Bossa. Maybe we get Jonathan Flo out there. Let's get these two freshmen out there. Let's get them live reps. Let's see who emerges. And after the Arizona game, you reflect, you figure it out, and you go, okay, going into Stanford, so-and-so has earned this spot. I think we all expect Brown to be the long-term fit there, especially as a three-down guy. I think Bossa could be fantastic in passing situations in terms of he's a safety who obviously can cover some, you know, faster guys, more athletic guys. You put him out there, maybe he's guarding bigger players in terms of tight ends from that spot. But I think he could be great on those spots. But I just think these next two weeks, you kind of look at it as an almost an audition period. We're looking at a bunch of players who are 2021 signees who are positioned now to play right away. And it's kind of like we don't really know much about any of these guys. Let's see what they do and how they play with some extended run against Stony Brook and then against Arizona. Jared, does your like long-term big picture perspective that this Oregon defense can still be truly elite, does it change without flow? Uh, yeah, it changes a bit. I do think that they can still have the talent level to be an elite team. Like, obviously, the loss of flow is a huge hit. You know, that, that takes away an, uh, a three-down linebacker who's one of the best probably in the conference. And you know, if he reaches his potential, could be one of the best in the country. However, you still have one of those linebackers on the other side of him and Noah Sewell. So you have some solidified dog at linebacker no matter what, no matter who's in the game. So that's always going to be a help. Uh, you know, once KT comes back, the defense looks completely different. It's as simple as that. And we're expecting KT to play most of the season. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, maybe he comes back for Stony Brook, maybe he comes back for Arizona. We'll find out. Uh, I do think, yeah, it's going to hurt them a bit. It, 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 how couldn't it? You know, this is a five-star athlete who in his first first real career game has 14 tackles, including basically the game-winning forced fumble. So that's the type of guy you're losing. It's going to hurt no matter what. But, however, I do think what this shows, what the depth shows, is two things. One is Oregon's tremendous ability to recruit. So you go from losing a five-star in Justin Flo to then being backed up with a top 120 player in the country, Keith Brown. You have Jeff McNeil, who's a three-star, and then Jeffrey Bossa, who's a four-star safety. You know, those are those are talented kids. That's a great thing to have. And number two is the positional versatility that Oregon's defense has made it a point of having. You know, you have a lot of people on the front seven who can play a lot of different positions, and you see that with Jeff Mc, or Jabril McNeil. Sorry, Jeff McNeil. I think it's a mess player. <laughs> you would have a baseball slip up of all of us too. I I know, you know, second base Mets. Um, but Jabril McNeil, he's he, he's a guy who they tried out at outside linebacker. And they're like, ah, okay, well, we're gonna put him back to inside linebacker. And Boss is a guy who, in high school, like Eric was saying, played everywhere on defense and in offense. He's just an athlete. So to put him down at linebacker and be like, you know, we're okay with that. We're gonna try it out. Yeah, that's a great thing to have for Oregon. Because if they if they didn't have those two guys where they just recruited straight safeties or straight linebackers, they wouldn't have this uh, this potential to just be like, you know what, we're going to mix and match somebody. We're going to try something out because they did it then. They have the skill set to do it. And we'll see if it creates anything, if it comes to fruition. But it's impressive that they have that capability to just throw a guy in a position and, and be relatively comfortable with it. 
I'm with you guys. I, I think this defense is going to p- probably take a little bit of a step back without flow, but I've got a lot of confidence that Keith Brown and the guys behind him will be able to manage the position, manage uh, their roles effectively. And we should also point out, I mean, as we saw against Ohio state, they still have no Sewell back there mm-hmm. <laughs> and that dude's still going to be taking dudes heads off left and right and covering up a lot of mistakes by this defense. So I think we're going to see how truly good Noah Sewell really is. I think we're all in belief that he's a pretty special player uh, and is going to show that now the next 10 games. Uh, we'll see how much he plays against Stony Brook, but that's another question down the road. All right, let's let's shift gears here for a second now and look around the conference. And it's two games in. Um, Eric made a great point that there's now only three teams in the league, three games into the season, that don't have a loss. Uh, I, I don't think anyone was was doubting Oregon or Arizona State, excuse me, uh, of going two and zero to start the season. But Oregon being two and zero to start the season is, is probably not something a lot of people were expecting. And certainly UCLA being 2-0 to start the season is something that a lot of people were not expecting as well at the beginning of the football season. But at the same time, it's kind of a concern, right, that there's only three teams left that don't have a loss. like that. It feels like the league has the two, two of maybe the three best wins in college football through two weeks. And yet, at the same time, they have a whole bunch of embarrassing losses. And the point you is a really good one there of if Oregon and UCLA don't have upset wins, this is a conference where Arizona State, after two games played, is the only team without a loss, which is just, <laughs> I mean, I mean that's just bizarre. Um, so it took basically UCLA and Oregon playing above what everybody expected for them to the conference to have any respect. I mean, they, they would be dead to rights if both UCLA and Oregon had lost already in those games. I mean, the conference would have no undefeated teams in, after two weeks. I mean, that would have been the ultimate. I mean, the whole, we'd be having a totally different discussion right now. We'd be talking about how the conference mm-hmm. is dead. As a Pac-12, does it need to expand to add some better teams? Does, is it really a power five? I and mean, we'd, be ta- we'd be having all sorts of doom and gloom conversations right now because the conference just hasn't been very good collectively. And I will say, like, even some of the losses, or some of the losses are very bad. But there's a couple that aren't too bad. Like I feel, I was pretty impressed with both Cal and Colorado this past weekend, kind of sticking around with some better teams from, say, Texas, Texas A&M and, and TCU, um, big underdogs in both those games. Both had a chance to win late. Um, that was impressive. And I think Stanford showed some stuff against USC. But collectively, this conference is just not where you need it to be. And it's going to be tough, I think, for Oregon to piece together those really impressive strength of schedule moving wins in this conference right now because the league just hasn't performed overall very well against the uh, out-of-conference schedule. And, I, you know, one of the things we've talked about in the past, I know at least I've we mentioned it before, is, hey, maybe the ceiling of the Pac-12, maybe the top couple of teams aren't quite what the other conferences are. But, boy, the middle to the back end is really competitive. Kind of the opposite has been proven true this year, which is surprising and kind of not maybe the best thing. I don't think this conference is very deep or very talented. Um, I think that Oregon and USC and UCLA all have really talented rosters. Obviously, USC has had some difficulties getting maximizing that. I think Washington, you can include there in terms of a, a, a quote-unquote talented roster, but they've had a ton of problems, which we're going to talk about in this show. But like other than that, I'm just I look around the conference. I'm really kind of underwhelmed right now, and I don't feel great about where this yeah. is headed. And I'm kind of excited for it to get into conference play, 
because the more they play in other schools from other conferences, it becomes more clear that they're just not very good. So there's a lot of big, by the way, we'll get into this when we make our predictions this week. There's some pretty, some more significant non-conference matchups for the Pac-12. They, this needs to be a better week than the last couple. They need to win some of these games, and especially you can't lose to lower quality opponents. I mean, the conference, I think, right now has a, a losing record against the Mountain West. Um, you can't continue that. And they've lost some games to FCS teams. Um, you can't do that. So uh, week three has to be a lot better for the league. Yeah, I mean, in the AP preseason poll, there were five Pac-12 teams ranked. Oregon, USC, Arizona State, Washington, Utah. Now there's only three teams ranked. Only two from that original five in Oregon and ASU. Now we have UCLA ranked after their two great victories to start the season. But yeah, we have Washington at 0 2, which I don't think anybody expected. You know, you could you could have seen a loss to Michigan. That's a good football program. And going to Ann Arbor is a tough, tough task. But the loss to Montana is one of the worst in program history. Then they lose to Michigan after not being able to execute. Utah lose, loses to BYU, which isn't a terrible loss, but after BYU's performance against Arizona in week one, doesn't look that great either. And then it's just a tough, it's a tough road for the Pac-12 right now. You like you guys have been saying, like the 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 top, the upper echelon teams have like UCLA and Oregon have had great wins this season. But no other Pac-12 team. I mean, I guess if you want to count Arizona State's wins, it's good, but I wouldn't. I mean, those are two games where they were favored by – a UNLV was like 32 and a half. That's ridiculous. And then they didn't even cover. But it's a tough it's a tough road right now for the Pack because there's not going to be any games unless there's an upset within the conference that really show off the talent that a team has if they have it. So, and there's not going to be any more out-of-conference games where – except for – I guess USC when they ultimately play Notre Dame, but it's tough sledding. I don't know where the conference goes from here, other than riding the coattails of hopefully getting an Oregon and, and UCLA matchup in the Pac-12 championship game, where both the teams are either undefeated or one loss. What what start has surprised you guys more? Washington being zero and two. And more so, I mean, the Montana loss no one expected, but I don't think anyone was shocked that that Washington lost at, at Michigan, but it's more of the manner that they have lost. Like they've been flat out bad or UCLA being two and Oh, and having not only a win over LSU, but a win in which they straight up dominated the Tigers. And it was like, they didn't even, they weren't even the same level of competition. It was a high school varsity team playing a JV team. Essentially what surprises you guys more? Can I, throw, can I throw USC losing to Stanford the way they did? Too? Sure, sure. Yes. You know, a lot of go stuff that's catching. Go ahead, Jared. Uh, I was going to go with Washington. I did not see this coming at all. Um, I saw UCLA potentially beating LSU. I didn't have any confidence in LSU's offense. I don't know why. I think it was just, you know, after last season, it just looked so putrid that I didn't want anything to do with it. But Washington losing to Montana was absolutely ridiculous. I didn't see that coming ever. And, you know, their offense is just just uh, abysmal. Like, it's so bad. They went 20 straight drives without scoring a point. Like, how do you do that? I feel like you have to try to do that. Their defense is good, as it always has been. But if they're only able to score 17 points in two games against Montana and Michigan, what are we doing? 
Yeah. Well, uh, just definitely Washington. The three of us actually predicted UCLA would beat LSU. So yeah. that to me isn't that big of a surprise. Um, I mean, I'm surprised by the manner they did. I thought they'd have to squeak it out. They won fairly convincingly. Um, I think they're for real. I'm good. I'm, I'm really good. Watch that LSU, or sorry, that watch that UCLA Fresno State game this weekend. That's yeah. That's going to tell us a lot about both those teams and, and for Oregon, both significant opponents. But this Washington team, I mean, Jared, you say they're good defensively. They're good against the pass. They gave up almost 350 yards on the ground to Michigan. And yeah, teams don't run. have to throw on Washington because they can run it. Yeah, and they ran. Right. Montana ran a lot too on them. I don't have all the stats there, but I know the running back was 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 the one that was making a lot of plays. He looked like the best player in the field in the fourth quarter for Montana. So. Um, Again, number one in the country against the pass. Michigan had 43 yards passing against them. Huzzah, things looked great, but uh, you can't defend the run at all. You lose by three, was it three scores when the other team doesn't even have 50 yards passing. Tells kind of the whole story. Um, and the offense is even worse. The offense is, is really bad. Um, I don't know if Dylan Morris stinks. I actually watched Dylan Morris play seven on seven and thought quite the opposite. I thought he was pretty good. In fact, a lot of the quarterbacks who've come through Washington – I don't know how much you want to talk about Washington. The quarterback development at that school has been embarrassing. That state, look, go look through the last five recruiting classes and look at the caliber of quarterback that state is producing. There's a borderline or a five-star kid every single year. Washington's gotten a lot of them, and none of them turned out to be very good. Um, I don't know if that's the, you know, if that's poor evaluation of this kid's from the state. I want to throw Brendan Huffman under the bus. That sounded like I just did. But I don't know if maybe that's just we think these kids are better than they really are. If this is Washington does a bad job of evaluating which player is actually the player they need to work on developing to be their starter, or if they just don't develop quarterbacks very well. But they just aren't very good at that position. And that's a position that if you look at how they've recruited and the talent that they have in that part of the or in that state, it shouldn't be. They shouldn't be in this situation. It's very similar, actually, to kind of what we see at USC. I think Slovis is obviously a lot better than Dylan Morris, but if they could have retained DJ Stroud, Bryce Young, or uh, DJ U, they would be in a lot better situation. And Clay Helton probably has his job right now. So um, the recruiting, I mean, the quarterback recruiting on the West Coast, did we develop? Really, really good talent out west. There's no question about it. And I think objectively, the better, the best quarterbacks in the country come from this part of the country. The fact that so many schools out here don't have very good quarterback play is alarming. And I think the fact that Washington, being one of the most notable ones, is even more alarming. And it's not all Dylan Morris's fault. Their offensive line, which is supposed to have a bunch of NFL caliber guys, Bad. getting blown up. They don't look good. It's the exact opposite of what we saw Oregon do against Ohio State in terms of that Michigan game. We've also now got an early look of maybe who are some early names to know for Offensive Player of the Year in the Pac-12. And, I, Eric, it was kind of funny. And then, Jared, I think you agreed with us, too, at the beginning of the year. Like, none of us really looked at C.J. Verdell as maybe the the guy on, you know, the team that had – no one looked at Verdell as, like, a heavy favorite to win Offensive Player of the Year in the Pac-12. Sure. Um, we, we thought he was probably Oregon's best chance, Correct. but we never thought it was like a top three guy in, in the league. And I think after the first few weeks of the season and looking at how things have shaped up, he might be along with uh, Zach Charbonnet of UCLA, their running back transfer from Michigan. He might be the, the odds on favorite to win the award of offensive player of the year 
Um, I, I think maybe the other guy on this list that might make the most sense is Oregon State's B.J. Baylor, but the Beavers have lost the game to Purdue already, and he doesn't have. He's a top three guy in, in rushing yards, and he has got the most rushing touchdowns in the league with five. Um, but it's also a case where he his sample size is, is pretty small, and so he doesn't have huge gawking numbers like Charbonnet does, where he's averaging 13 yards a carry. The quarterback play in a Pac-12. I talked about it. Go pull up their stats for those. Yeah. We'll look at it. The, the conference's passing stats are pretty bad. I mean, Anthony Brown probably has a strong argument that he's had, like, the best start of this group. No one's averaging more than 259 yards. Um, no no quarterback has more than four touchdowns through two games. Only a couple haven't thrown a pick. That's Chance Nolan, Anthony Brown, and Tanner McKee from Stanford. Um, actually, I guess Arizona's Will Plummer hasn't thrown one as well, but he hasn't thrown very many times. Um, just 20 attempts in two games. He's a backup splitting time with Gunnar Cruz from Arizona. Anyway, but like you, you look through here and it's just like, you don't want to, you can't say that, that a quarterback's not going to win this award because it's two weeks in. They haven't played conference. Yeah. But I think right now it's very safe to say that early indications are that it's going to be probably a running back, at least based on the first two weeks who are the top performers. And you, we've just kind of said, you just, you know, said who they are. I think right now it's a two horse race, maybe a three horse race if you want to throw Baylor in. And I just don't know how viable Oregon yeah. is as a team. So, like, it's probably the, the, the star running back at Oregon versus the star running back at UCLA. And, hey, that's that's sort of notable. That's interesting. Um, I will say, I think if you want to talk about trying to compete and win a national championship, this is not a very encouraging situation where you don't have elite quarterback play. You need that. You go watch these national championship games really since the start of the college football playoff and really just donning back to, you know, like the early 2000s. You need an elite quarterback typically to win a championship. Conference doesn't have one. Period. None of the schools have an elite, elite quarterback. Can this conference compete for a national championship with that one? I don't know. We'll find out. But I certainly think you feel pretty poor about that quarterback position just collectively in the conference right now. I was really impressed with the way Anthony Brown competed there. I'm sure the stats and numbers are going to look better once they play a little bit worse defenses. They played two good ones. But um, I think overall, yeah, I think it's C.J. Verdell, it's Zach Charbonnet, and, and maybe there's another running back that pops up into it. But I don't think one of these quarterbacks has really proven anything so far, and that's probably a little disappointing just collectively for following this conference. I like the potential of Verdell and Charbonnet to win this award, but I'm going to go – I'm going to zag. I'm going to say that it's absolutely going to be a quarterback. Really? That's just how these things work, yeah. I think at one point we're going to get Keenan Slovis or Jaden Daniels to start lighting something up and just having a, a great season. And it won't be, honestly, if CJ Verdell stays healthy, he'll probably deserve to win the award. But that's just not how sometimes this works. I just think a quarterback is going to take it. it it'll probably either be Jaden Daniels or Keenan Slovis. They're just the two name brand guys. They got the most explosive offense. They're going to put up good numbers. They're not going to put up elite numbers, and they're certainly not that elite quarterback the Pac-12 needs as a whole, as a conference but they're going to put up enough numbers where voters are just going to look and they'll probably end up with decent records on their teams. And those guys will probably be the ones to win the award, but Charbonnet and Verdell, that's going to be an exciting race to watch just on the peripheral, just to see who can put up the best stats, who can put up the most numbers. Cause I think those are easily the two most talented backs in the conference. I'll push back on the quarterback winning the award four of the last six and three of the last four have been running backs. Um, I, I think it'll be a running back. The last two were running backs. Um, the last quarterback really of note to win the award was Marcus Mariota in 14. Mm. Um, 
I guess, sorry, Washington fans, Jake Browning apparently isn't a quarterback of note, but <laughs> that was probably rude, and Washington fans aren't listening anyway, but that's pretty defensive. Um, I guess there has been a quarterback of note, maybe. But, I mean, you look through the names there. Mariota's the last one that really means anything on that list. Gardner Minshew as well. But um, the, the quarterback position in this conference, I, I'm kind of getting at, just hasn't been great for about – half a decade almost now. Um, I know Justin Herbert was here and he was really good and never was even a contender for these awards somehow. Um, I think it's going to be running back. I think it's going to be one of the two guys we're talking about. We're talking about this way, way down the line. There's a lot of stuff, but I I feel pretty good about saying those are the two favorites right now. Defensively on that side of the football, let's look just team wise. Um, I, I think people are a little surprised if, you told him at the beginning of the year, a defense that brought back so much talent, so many uh, returning starters that Oregon would have statistically the worst defense in the conference. Um, they're averaging 493 yards per game. Um, their yards per play average is also not very good at 6.25, which is 10th in the conference. But I, I look at that and I see – a defense, though, that is really good against the run. I mean, opponents are only averaging 3.36 yards per carry so far against Oregon. That's fifth, that's fifth in the conference. And they've played probably two of the toughest teams throwing the football uh, in the country. Uh, Fresno State's maybe not like a top 10 team, but they've got NFL talent at that spot. Um, and – I don't walk away looking at this Oregon defense saying they're the worst defense in the conference. I, this is one in which I think you look at it and I don't think the stats tell the true story of how good this Oregon defense is. It's just, they've played some pretty vaunted offenses the first two weeks of the year. Play that schedule and get back to me. Anybody else in the conference, play that schedule and get back to me, see what happens. It would be worse period. I think, I think, I mean, I, I think Oregon might have the best defense in the conference. UCLA has a, has an argument there. Some of what Stanford did early against that USC offense was really impressive. I need to go watch what happened in the fourth quarter because they did score some points, but um, there may be in the conversation. Utah has a defense that we always think is good. It might not be quite that good this year or BYU is just a lot better in the trenches than we thought because they kind of got manhandled a little bit in that game. Um, I, I mean, I I think I think everybody needs to really chill on Oregon's defensive backfield not being good or anything in that regard. And I think we made that point earlier in the week. Um, the game plan didn't call for them, and it would be silly to put those guys tight press man coverage on an island against Ohio State's receivers and try to just play it that way. You're going to get absolutely embarrassed that way. They didn't play it that way. They played it so that everything was kept in front of them, and they didn't really give up any explosive plays all game. Yeah. This is very similar, by the way, to what Oregon did against USC in 19 when in that game, where USC comes in with Tyler Vons and Michael, Pitt, Michael, Michael Pittman um, and Amon Ross St. Brown. And those guys all get their catches to get some yards and they score some touchdowns. Drake London was on that team too, but none of them averaged big yard numbers. None of them really had explosive plays. And this is what Oregon did. And it was it's a good strategy in that game. That's the way you approach it. It worked. Um, sure, it was a disappointing seeing an opposing offense get gain that many yards. I guess probably, but like this is this is not going to be a trend. I don't think this season. And if it is a trend where they start actually getting beaten deep in man coverage and stuff, I will be more concerned. I, I actually probably feel better, strangely, about Oregon's secondary 
right now than I expected to feel. I think Oregon's got a much better collection of corners than I thought they had. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I do. I think, sure, maybe they don't measure up 100% with Ohio State's wide receivers, but that's never going to happen. And I think Oregon's corners have played fantastic for two weeks. And I think people suggesting that they're bad are, are misinformed and should go watch it again. Yeah, we've had this discussion a couple times now. Just because the yardage from Jake Hayner and C.J. Stroud looks bad on paper, if you go and watch the game, that's how they executed their game plan, like Eric said. They wanted to keep everything in front of them, keep Olave and Smith and Jigba and uh, like and Mitchell and keep them all in front of them. Wilson. Don't let any – Wilson, sorry, Gary Wilson. Uh, and, and you can't just – don't let anybody go behind them and don't let any explosive plays happen, and that's exactly what they did. And it's the same that they did with Fresno State. At the time against Fresno State, they probably didn't have the bodies to keep up with DJ James and Jamal Hill being suspended. But against Ohio State, that was the game plan. They stuck to it, and you know it turned out on top. They held that offense to, to 28 points. It's impressive. And once they start playing lesser competition, they'll be able to put uh, their their cornerbacks in, in press man coverage. And then you'll really be able to tell how good Michael Wright is, how good DJ James, Dante Manning, and Tricos Bridges are. Like that's that's honestly what I'm excited for, is to see those guys get put to work, and just for everybody else to see how good those players are. And Matt, like you were saying, their their defense it was a 3.6 yards per carry was what they're allowing. Like that's really good. Yeah. And that's without and that's without KT and that's without flow against Ohio State. You know that's a good defensive front seven. Brandon Dorless was the highest rated defensive lineman uh, by PFF in the Pac-12 this week. You know, like this is a good defense. They're gonna show out once they play lesser competition and. It's going to be just a just a night and day difference in terms of look, just looking at the stat, being a box score reader. I was happy, Eric, that you mentioned that you thought maybe the the Ducks have the best defense in in the conference, um, because I was thinking about I wanted to go there, but I wasn't quite sure if I was overreacting yet or being too much of a air quote Homer on that one. But I, I'm with you. Like, I I think this team even with the injuries that they've sustained, but with the return of Jamal Hill and DJ James, and once they get KT back, you know, that's probably the most important one. If they don't get KT back, I'm not there, but if they do get KT back soon, they're going to morph into probably one of the top two or three, if not the best defense in the conference. And when you have the offense, like they're humming right now, and you have a defense that's at that level, it's going to be pretty tough to see, um, someone challenge and, and, and beat Oregon. And I think that goes into our next question. That's ended it here. So I kind of make one point just yeah. really quickly. I just want to say in terms of the secondary, you talk about Kayvon coming back. The numbers are way different if they manufacture a pass rush. And yes. when Thibodeau is available, yes. people are going to feel a lot better about the secondary because it's going to change everything up front. I just wanted to say that point. But continue. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, I think going in to the season, I had USC as – uh, the Pac-12 South champion. I think Eric had UCLA as the Pac-12 South champion. And I believe, Jared, you had USC as well, right? Utah. 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 Yeah. So we all had different picks. Um, has our perception changed? Mine certainly has. I'm not picking USC to win the Pac-12 South. I mean, they fired their head coach. So that tells you where their season's yeah. going. Uh, I'm, I'm on the same train with Eric that UCLA wins. Are we all in agreement that that's probably the team Oregon's going to be facing? We're picking the sissy blue. <laughs> Come on over. The water's mm-hmm. fine. It's been really nice and warm over here the last couple of weeks. Really, yep. really nice. 
Yeah, I feel good about it. But I also will say we haven't seen him play a conference game yet. And yeah. UCLA, I think, is gonna is gonna be challenged a little bit because they have, they have a fairly tough schedule in terms of who they play in the conference. They don't really miss any of the big teams. So we'll learn pretty quickly about them. But I feel I don't even think it's that close. In fact, like who who, who do we think is the second best team? It's probably not USC, do we think? I mean Arizona State. Based on results, but it's still I think I'd still take I think I'd still take USC. I think like I, I think they're just too talented to just go like you know five and seven or something like that. I mean, and I Arizona State. I'm Arizona State. I'm not sold on. I haven't. We haven't seen them play a real game, basically. Colorado has the most impressive loss. True. Just I don't know. I, I really have no idea what who even. I have no idea how, what to think about Colorado too, though. No, I don't either. It's going to be really. It's actually going to be really fun in the South to just try to pick and choose what's going to happen here. I think we think UCLA is the best, but I think it's really hard to know the order from two through five because Arizona is obviously the bottom team. They're, they're really not good, but I could be convinced that USC, Utah, or Colorado, or Arizona State. I almost forgot about them. Could could be the second best team in the South. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I agree on that. It's South has kind of been flipped upside down a little bit, and. Uh, the league, and this is what's so true about the Pac-12, and real quick, this is so good about every other league too, is if you have one or two really good teams, the league's perception doesn't really matter beyond that. Like the rest of the league could be average and you're fine. And that's kind of what the narrative is like right now about, about the Pac-12 because Oregon has the best win of the regular season so far against Ohio State. And UCLA has the third best win of the regular season at home against LSU. And no one's hammering home how USC is dragging the conference down. No one's hammering home how Washington is dragging the conference down. No one's hammering home how bad of a loss at BYU it was for Utah. Uh, you know, no, no one's talking about Cal being 0-2 or Stanford being god-awful against Kansas State. You know, it's not being hammered home. Everyone's talking about Oregon. Everyone's talking about UCLA. And the perception of the league is they're a playoff team if you emerge out of that out of this conference with, with one or fewer losses. So th that's how important it is to have just two really good teams in your league because everything else changes. It's, it's Clemson in the ACC kind of thing where yeah. – the conference as a whole is bad, but everyone respects Clemson. I think hopefully throughout the season, the way it plays out, both Oregon and UCLA take care of business. And I do think, I will say this, and I think I mentioned this to you guys in person, and Jared mentioned it too. I think the best case scenario for the Pac-12 would be, obviously one of the teams is going to win that October 26th or whatever it is, October 23rd meeting in Pasadena. But if those teams meet then in the conference championship game, and the outcome of that game basically being a you win, you're in for the college football playoff. You lose, you're not. Um, if that's if the only loss on both of those teams' schedules combined is to each other in that one crossover game, and then they meet in the conference championship, that means that goes basically assured of getting a team into the playoff, in my opinion. That's how the league could could realistically argue of having two in, right. in the playoff. I mean, we're like that's way down. Yeah. <laughs> The, the the whole the, the trail there but like that's that's how you position yourself for being in discussion of a number two team getting into the college football playoff like if Oregon wins that game against UCLA and let's say they you know they win by like 10 points 
and then UCLA doesn't lose the rest of the way. They blow all their other opponents out of the water. They look really good the rest of the way. And then it's like a 31-28 UCLA win in the Pac-12 championship game, and that's Oregon's only loss of the entire year. They're now 12-1. and one. They're, they're probably mm-hmm. in the playoff. Yeah, that would be that'd wild. Be, that would be wild. That would be nuts. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, <laughs> but like, – I don't either, but that would be crazy. Non-conference wins. Well, yeah, and it, that wouldn't be any different from when Georgia and Alabama both make it into the playoffs. And when they right. you know, they met in 2018 and played in the championship game. It's like, okay, they have one loss. Oh, great, it's to each other. Cool. Who are we going <laughs> to not take? Exactly. And then, and then they'll meet each other for a third time in the national championship game. It's all coming up Pac-12. We just figured it out. <laughs> right, okay, good, good, good. That's, that's all we need. <laughs> that would be awesome. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for uh, watching us on YouTube as well. And thank you for checking out duckterritory.com for all your coverage of the Oregon Ducks as the season progresses. Until then, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.